This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Hi, this is Anissa, and we're back with another interlude episode, in which Khadija and I talk to Muslims outside our usual stomping grounds to get some broader perspectives of the last 20 years. In this very special interview, we talk to Dr. Marine Farouki, the Green Senator for New South Wales in the Australian Parliament, and the first Muslim woman to hold public office in the history of Australia. She's a civil and environmental engineer and lifelong activist for social and environmental justice. She's also my aunt, my very own popo. Marine Popo tells us about migrating to Australia from Pakistan in the 90s, how she made a home and then a political career down under, and how things changed in Australia post 9-11. We cover the rise of right-wing populism, the influence of media on government, dealing with Islamophobic abuse and harassment, how environmental justice is inextricable from racial justice, and more. Most importantly, she emphasized to us that nothing is too small or too big when it comes to political involvement, and reminds us that politics start with people, not parliaments. I, for one, feel rejuvenated after our conversation. On a personal note, we'd like to thank old friends and new who've reached out to us and expressed how much you've benefited from the conversations we've been having on Muslim in Plain Sight. This has been such a cathartic, emotional, and truly fulfilling project. And knowing that you all feel the same way makes all the late nights and technical difficulties worth it. Thank you for letting us into your ears, your homes, and your commutes. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate using the link in the show notes, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or simply tell your friends to check us out. Now, let's dive into our fantastic discussion with one of the bravest women I know. Assalamualaikum. I'm Anissa. Assalamualaikum. I'm Khadija. And today we're very excited to welcome a very special guest because she's actually my aunt. <laughs> and she's also the senator of New South Wales in the Australian Parliament. Assalamualaikum, Senator Marine Farouki. Walaikum <laughs> assalam. It's absolutely lovely to be here with both of you, Khadija and Anissa. Thanks for having me. It's amazing to have you. Yes, we're so honored to have you. Thank you for making the time. I know you have like 8 million demands on your time every day, but we're really, really excited to have you. Mm. I think that's life for, for most people these days. I Thank think you. the first question is, do you sleep? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> Don't be Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> oh my goodness. For so many reasons. Don't yeah. be Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. But no, I do I do need my sleep. So I, you know, I get about six, seven hours every night and hopefully more some nights. That's good. So Marion Faruqi is the Green Senator for New South Wales in the Australian Parliament. She is a civil and environmental engineer and lifelong activist for social and environmental justice. She's also one of my role models. And um, let me just fully embarrass you like I admire you so much. 
<laughs> I look up to you so much. You're so brave, mashallah. Um, so what we wanted to do, you know, normally when we interview people, we are often interviewing people of our own generation and kind of talking to them about how, you know, growing up at the same time that this momentous worldwide kind of catastrophic event happened and derailed our lives in a lot of ways. But we also do these interviews that are with people outside of that group, because I think it really provides us with, you know, interesting additional context, you know, like talking to our elders, talking to people who are younger than us. And we thought it would be really amazing to get your perspective, because not only are you in a different settler colonial state than than we are, um, than I am. I mean, Khadija lives in the heart of the the, the colonial mother. empire, <laughs> the metropole. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, I don't think that we have a very good idea of what kind of impact September 11th actually had in Australia. But I feel like it must have. Before we get to that, though, we wanted to ask you, who were you on September 10th? I was still marrying. <laughs> but, but probably thinking about it, I was a marine who was a lot less politically active, a lot less fearful, mm-hmm. and a lot less angry. Um, but, you know, more than that, it had been about nine years since we had migrated to Australia from Lahore in 2001. We had lived in Sydney, the biggest city in Australia, for about you know eight of those years, and then decided that surely... There is more to life than the rat race of a big city of, you know, working every day, you know, taking your kids to childcare, to school. Um, and life was just really hectic. We, would, we had just found our feet in the country, but we wanted to explore a bit more. So we had moved just that year, a few months before September 10th, to a very small town in uh, regional New South Wales, coastal New South Wales called Port Macquarie. And we were just setting in, settling in there. We were probably one of two or three Muslim families there. Uh, mm. It was very monocultural, very white. I had two children at that time. Aisha, my daughter, was five and my son was 11. Um, so we were just living the life of, you know, a family finding their feet um, in a new place, really. Um, a typical migrant story. Wow, I didn't realize that it had only been a few months since you had moved to Port Macquarie. Absolutely. And I, we just started new jobs. Both uh, my husband, Omar, and I were working in the local council there. And I think we probably were the first people of color other than First Nations people who had ever worked at that council. Wow. So it was a big change for them as well. <laughs> <laughs> in England, and I'm sure this is the same in, in Australia and probably in the US as well, Muslims and migrant populations tend to concentrate in big cities. So it's always been like an object of curiosity for me when I meet people who actually choose to leave those places and go to places that are much more, I mean, to put it boldly, they're very white. Mm. And there's, you know, they may be the, the only one or two people of color in that region. What leads you to to make that kind of choice because it's I mean it's very brave and scary <laughs> like I don't think I could do that yeah it, it was scary and quite a few of our friends Khadija in Sydney did tell us not to make that move because you know they thought Sydney of course is very multicultural you can find people of similar backgrounds similar mm. re- religion very easily um, but there were none in that place 
So it really was a deliberate choice, but it was it came after a few very big events that happened in our lives. I mean, I thought once we'd moved from Pakistan, that was it. Like, you know, that was the move mm-hmm. I had made and I was never going to move again. Uh, but just, I think it was that year it might have been. Uh, my husband almost drowned in the ocean. He was in the army reserves and they were doing um, their, um, you know, their practice. And he almost drowned in a small town. He was there and he was in hospital. And, we, and a few months before that, my mother-in-law, his mom, who we loved dearly, had passed away quite mm-hmm. young. Um, so I think that really made us reflect on what life is about. And for us at that point in time, life was just too hectic. You know, we were both, like I said earlier, we were both working, trying to make ends meet. Um, we hardly got time to see each other because we had two children and, you know, doing all that work. And when that opportunity came, we just jumped at it. We wanted to be closer together as a family unit. Mm-hmm. And what we had heard from life in smaller towns was that it was much easier to do that. And it was. It really was. I think it was one of the best moves we've made. Life was really wonderful. You know, people did appreciate in smaller towns uh, that family was priority. The first thing that my boss in that uh, council told me was, yes, Marin, we know we all have to do our work, but family is priority. Mm, so, that's so interesting. And it really was. It really was. I guess it means that in some ways it allows you to have more individuality, I guess, to not be lost in the masses. Absolutely. And, you know, I was used to a big city. I grew up in Lahore, a city of 10 million people. I was very comfortable in Sydney, but I couldn't find the same social connections that we had in Lahore in Sydney. Like Mm -hmm. everyone was as busy as we were. So there was no time really to get to know your neighbors well. Um, And I did find those connections in Port Macquarie. I did find my community in Port Macquarie, although it wasn't a community with a similar background to mine, but I did find Mm. that community there. So then 9-11 happens. What kind of effect did that have on your relationship with the community? And then what kind of experience was it for Muslims in Australia in general at that time? Wasn't a massive. I think our world changed. I think if you ask Muslims around the world, they they, you'd probably get a similar response. Our world actually just changed after 9-11. You know, the war on Iraq, the war on Afghanistan. Um, in Australia, our Prime Minister John Howard at that time was actually in the U.S. when 9-11 happened. Really? Yeah, he was in the U.S. So he very quickly jumped in allyship with the U.S. to do whatever the U.S. was demanding at that time. Um, And I think it just culminated the underlying, um, what should I say, racism, xenophobia against people like us. It became unleashed, Mm -hmm. very blatant, and political parties used it to their benefit. This debate on refugees and asylum seekers had already just reared its head. Um, And just a few months, I think it was just a few months before 9-11 when John Howard had famously said, we will decide who comes to Australia and under what circumstances they come. And so that whole border politics just reached its epitome after that. And, you know, since that time over the last 20 years, we have seen refugees who and asylum seekers who make their way to Australia, being, you know, detained, 
dehumanized, just treated so poorly in offshore detention centers. So that was a big part of it. We saw also a couple of years after there was a huge culmination, I think, which was uh, impacted and heightened by 9-11. These were called famously the Cronulla riots, where on a beach in uh, the south of Sydney, there were about 5,000 people or more than that assembled on that beach one day to reclaim the beach from outsiders. And those outsiders were people of Middle Eastern appearance. So a couple of days before that, there had been a bit of a kerfuffle uh, and a fight that had broken out between um, three white lifesavers and a group of Middle Eastern people. But no one could have imagined that that fight would eventuate in thousands of people descending mm. on a beach, uh, you know, to defend their way of life. And was this in 2001? Yeah. And there were, yeah. there were massive riots for days which the media and the right-wing media inflamed for weeks. Oh, my God. But personally as well, like we had been living, um, well, we'd only been in Port Macquarie for a few months. And, you know, small towns in Australia are very kind of detached, mostly, from international politics. That was kind of my experience then because I went to work and, you know, I was really wanting to have conversations with people about what had happened, some analysis. But... Maybe in, a, it was, in hindsight, it's a good thing. People were like, yeah, it's really bad what happened. But, you know, we did this on the weekend or that on the weekend. So, you know, th that was kind of the reaction in the smaller towns. But after that, we did see more racism coming out. Like my son was once told to, you know, get out of here and go back to Afghanistan. So those kinds of things weren't happening before to the extent that they started happening then. And I think the anti-Muslim kind of nationalist patriotic thing got the justification hmm. uh, because it was just politicians divided the community, fear-mongered. We were made the other for their advantage. They would harvest votes by creating this division within the community. So what you're saying is that the racism basically was top-down. Oh, it, it definitely was top down. And, That's you know, I mean, so interesting. I live in a it is, it is. I mean, I live in a country, though, you have to acknowledge that where racism has always existed for the last 200 years after mm. it was so violently colonized. Mm. It was always there. There's a whole system, a structure of racism in this yeah. country. I mean, Anissa and I were having a conversation before we started this about what we know about Australia. And I told her that basically my first thought whenever anyone says Australia is racist. Hmm. Like it's the most extremely racist English speaking country that we know of. I don't know if that's, is that fair to say? I mean, it is, there's no denying that, you know, I would say that when I, we came here in 1992 and, you know, we went back to Pakistan almost every year, but it has, no one actually talked about Australia then as a racist country. Mm. But in the last 15 years or so, when I go back to Pakistan, people do ask me that question. They have started asking me that question, why is Australia so racist? When we migrated here, I actually did feel welcome. Obviously, we experienced what, what is called everyday or casual racism. Mm. Mm. There was not this searing of hate that now exists. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, as a newcomer, my initial assessment of Australia was that people had worked hard here for an egalitarian society. But of course, the more I found out about our history of colonization, the more I realized how far away from reality that was for indigenous Australians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the reality is the history is tainted in dispossession, occupation and violence. And, you know, two centuries on, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are still targeted by the worst kind of oppression and discrimination and racism through government policies. That's undeniable. Do you find that, you know, obviously the international reputation of Australia has changed in the way that you you just mentioned, but do you feel that your own experience, because you mentioned in your memoir, your excellent memoir, which everyone should read, <laughs> which I, I love the title, <laughs> by you. the way, it's called Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud, which is just... It's so you, Maine people. <laughs> I love it. But you you mentioned in there that you have felt over the last 30 years since you migrated to Australia that the xenophobia has gotten worse. And I wonder if it's that it's become more overt and that's why it feels worse. But I wonder if there's also an element of, you know, when you first come as a migrant, especially when you come like sort of in an academic class, you know, you weren't coming as like migrant worker there was a there was a certain prestige to the class that you were in when you came. And I know that for many of us that migrate, you know, to the U.S., to Canada, to other countries, when we first come, we're kind of put into this sort of mainstream assimilationist like white culture that has all of these narratives about being a good immigrant and, you know, what what it takes to be a good citizen of the country and, and all these myths about the, the nation, about how it's egalitarian and everyone has equal rights. And, and then like slowly over time, you start to see that that isn't actually true. And I'm wondering if that's also part of, you know, your experience of the racism getting worse. Um, I think it definitely is. I feel that it now that it always existed, but I also know without doubt that it has really increased and mm. legitimized and unleashed. For years, Anissa, I've watched politician whip up now anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant hysteria. That wasn't the case uh, when I came here. And of course, you're absolutely right. You know, I was educated, came here. It still took me and my husband like two years to find a job. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, we had experience. We were qualified engineers. Our qualifications were recognized here. But from what we know, that research tells us that resume racism is rampant. Oh, absolutely. And I don't mean to devalue the struggles that you faced when you you went to Australia. But I completely, but I completely understand. There's also this hesitation on your part when you come to a new place and you want to settle in. I mean, for me, it was like, I don't want to be a troublemaker. I have to settle into this country, you know. So any Mm -hmm. incidents of racism, you say, oh, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Uh, I must have said something, you know, or or people just need to get to know me better and it'll be different. Yeah. Um, so definitely there was part of that. But I reckon that things really have changed much for the worse. I mean, I sit in a parliament where there have been calls made to return to white Australia policies, where people have called for a ban on Muslim migration, where mm. a politician has worn a burqa into the parliamentary chamber, into the Senate chamber, calling for a ban on the burqa. You know, we've been told that Australia is being swamped by Muslims. And when we talk about racism, we are the ones who are gaslighted. We are told that we are dividing 
the community by just, you know, bringing up this issue. That's how the debate is in Australia. And these views are not contained by some imagined, like, fringe in our parliament. They're actually senior politicians, some in the government. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we just uh, had a president who did all of these well, things. there you so go. Exactly. It's, not, exactly. it's definitely not a fringe movement here either, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are others who may not be openly fanning these flames, but they, are, they bystand and they don't call it out. So they're complicit as well in, you know, where, how the situation is now. And Christchurch, how, how can we forget Christchurch? It is this rise in the far right and this Islamophobia that eventually culminated in an Australian man mercilessly killing 51 people in New Zealand. Just such, it's such a devastating thing that like it, it's hard to even have words to talk about it. Yeah, it, it is. One of the things that struck me after that happened was just the way that this movement, this this far right nationalist uh, hate movement has like international, they have an international network and they have, it's a network of information. It's a network of money. It's a network of, it's crazy, right? It's like the, all the things that they accuse us of having, but they're like, these people are, are, trying to get rid of people like us. And there's like no concern raised about it. There's no alarm. There's, there's, it's, it's just mind blowing, honestly. Well, you have to be seen as human first. And, you know, that's something we still haven't achieved. Yeah, yeah it is. It is totally dehumanizing us and making us this, this enemy. I guess I often think about what's happening in politics and how has the far right being able to get this far. And obviously in Australia, their inequality is rising. There is no question about that. There are major issues with poverty, with homelessness. And I think it's the same situation in the US and the UK as well. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and rather than addressing those problems, these politicians have used people who are kind of being impacted by those issues and impacted massively uh, for them to find this enemy in others like us. So the immigrants are the problem because there's too many of us here and we take away the resources. And ironically, we take their jobs away, but we also take welfare. You know, we're standing <laughs> in those queues uh, begging, but we're also get, taking away all those jobs. So, you know, I think they, there is that, that problem. And politicians in general, obviously, are um, kind of not, not respected. In general, they... Um, you know, there um, is obviously mistrust. Um, so people who portray themselves as, you know, not that privileged politician class, you know, I'm different mm. and I'm here to help you. They've managed to somehow get support from people who are not just, I guess, racists or white supremacists or nationalists, but also people who are actually really suffering because mm. of the inequality issues. Yeah. Could you explain the rise of One Nation and the associated movement for people who are not familiar with Australian politics? And also, like, even for me, I've heard you talk about it a little bit, but mm. is it like a mainstream party in Australia? Like, you're in a multi-party system, so it's different from something like the U.S. where we have two parties, basically. Mm. Would you mind explaining a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. So it is a very small party. At the moment, it just has two senators um, in the Australian parliament. 
It started in 1996 when the now leader of the One Nation Party, Pauline Hanson, was elected to the Australian Parliament as an independent after she had been disendorsed by the Liberal Party for some terrible comments that she made about First Nations people. Uh, she lost the election in 1998, but basically was given, and you know, people may, may or may not remember, in her first speech in Parliament in 1996, she said, I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians. So at that time... Wow. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot worse things than that. It, it is a very divisive, very divisive party. So then she was out of politics for a good 10 years. But she was given a platform by mainstream media. That sounds familiar. And this is how it starts, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Like media is so involved and so responsible for what we see um, in our society and in our politics at the moment. So then um, Pauline Hansen and One Nation came back, I think it was in 2016, with four, four senators after, you know, the rise of xenophobia, Islamophobia, bigotry in the 2000s. One Nation came back and they came back with a new enemy. So then in her first speech, uh, after this comeback, she said, we are in danger of being swamped by Muslims who bear a culture and ideology that is incompatible with our own. And just a few years ago, One Nation actually put up a motion in the Senate the motion said it was okay to be white, uh, which is really, it's a, um, you know, it's a white supremacist kind of alt-right. Right. Yeah. And that motion almost passed. It was lost by just three votes. My so there were government MPs voting for that motion. You know, while One Nation depicts the racism in this country, it's not a fringe movement. Mm -hmm. There are others there. And, and I guess the difference between the comeback of One Nation now and in the 90s is pretty big as well. In the 90s, politicians, political leaders were actually criticizing them. Now they are doing deals with them. The government mm. who doesn't have a majority in the Senate does deals with them to get their support. All of this is so familiar. And they have just enough representation that they can have an outsized amount of power on Absolutely. the outcome of these votes, which is so undemocratic. Yeah, it's what's happening here. It's been happening here for the last few years. Mm. It's what Theresa May did after her weak election win. And then she allied with uh, the DUP, which is uh, quite an extreme. I'm going to mess up my Irish politics here, but they're an extreme party in Northern Ireland. Theresa May chose to ally with them rather than have a coalition, mm. a more central coalition, which kind of drove the party more into the right. And everything you're saying is so familiar because they're like carbon copies of the things our own governments have done yes. in our respective countries. Yeah, it's the playbook of the far right. Yeah. And they do it really well. And I guess the question is, where where is the opposition to it? Because, you know, even the so-called left parties, like for the US, it's your Democratic Party. For us, it's the Labour Party. Um, it's just not up to the task. Mm. And you wonder whether that's because they're not actually opposed to it. They largely 
agree with many of the broad concepts and it's just about how I think, deep you're going in. Yeah. And I think here the main problem that the Democrats have is that they don't actually have a moral stance. They oh, just oh. want to retain whatever power they can by appealing oh, to the oh. broadest base that they possibly can. So yeah. they go extremely centrist, even though it's been shown time and time again that it's only the candidates who actually commit to some kind of moral position, who are actually more left-leaning, that actually get people to come out and vote. And that the people want a lot of these things that are considered like, quote-unquote, too radical or you know too liberal. Those are the things that people want, that most people want, but they are so afraid of letting go of any of their power um, mm. that just they just like make a lot of statements that sound nice. But when it comes down to it, they're not willing to commit to doing anything that feels risky to them. There's also corporate interests that governments that, of course. are more invested in serving. So, of course, yeah, that's the going to take priority. You know? mm. the, the same corporations donate to our two big parties, the, the Liberal Party and the Labour Party. And, and although I would say the Labour Party is, I think, morally less corrupt than the Liberal Party, um, they are coming more to the centre as well. And they, they're really not loud enough in calling out issues of, of racism and fear and division. Mm. But I guess the big difference here is that we at least have the Greens here as a third party, which is kind of getting bigger. And because our votes originally came from the votes of the Labour Party, we can actually try and push them to be a little bit better. So there mm. is that bit of influence that is here. But we've been under a Liberal government for, for a decade now. Wow. Yeah, sounds like uh, Canada under Harper, which, mm. you know, we also had all kinds of, we actually had a federal niqab ban for a while. It only got repealed, I think, in like 2019. So you couldn't actually take your citizenship oath if you're wearing a uh, niqab. Wow. And I mean, Quebec has had a ban for a long time, but Quebec wants to be France, so they just France. do their own thing. <laughs> I know, but these from, it's so hypocritical, you know, coming from liberal democratic countries who would, you know, who otherwise fight for the individual's rights to be able to wear or not wear whatever they want to, but not when it comes to Muslims. Right. Well, it exposes mm. the white supremacist underpinnings of all of that, right? Because it, then you find out who are those rights really for. They're not for everybody. One of the things I found really kind of, it made me laugh. Uh, Anissa sent me a few extracts of your book because I haven't been able to um, read the full thing yet. But this, you know, you experience a lot of abuse from people online and offline. Mm, and mm. You write about how people would say to you, we're going to put you in a burqa. And you're just like, I mean, on the one hand, they want to take you out of it, but they also want to put you in it at the same time. And you're like, there's no method to your madness. And of course there isn't. But you do often wonder, do people, they don't, they don't listen to themselves, but you do wish they would sometimes. <laughs> I think if you are a migrant brown Muslim woman in politics, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That's how I've experienced it. You know, they put you on the one hand, they put you in this box of what their perception of someone like me should be. Someone who's apparently ruled by the men in her life, whether it be her father or a husband or a brother or a son uh, and has no agency of her own. And then on the other hand, you're also exoticized. 
then on one other hand, you you know, if you speak out about things, you're told to shut up because you know you know you should adhere to your religion. You're a troublemaker. You're too <laughs> you're loud. Troublemaker. So <laughs> too loud, exactly. And that's what the title of the book is about. It's about mm-hmm. the labels that are used to denigrate me. But you yeah. know, I I proudly I proudly em- embrace those labels. I'm going to be who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can't please everyone, I'll please myself and uh, you you know do the right thing. Yeah, and wear a nasty woman t-shirt while you're at it. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned, speaking of the things that people say about you, um, you mentioned the media before, and it's just so interesting to me. As I was reading your book, I kept seeing you mention like the Murdoch press, the Murdoch media. And like, because Fox News has become so entrenched here, and it has such a devastating impact on our politics and our daily life, honestly... I sometimes forget that it's actually Australian, like in origin, and that it's not an indigenous, because it feels so American, you know, in all of the hatred that it spews. And I was just wondering, like, what is the role of the Murdoch media in Australia? Is it like, to compare with Fox News, Fox News basically forms this sort of propaganda arm of the Republican Party. And for example, when Trump was in office, it was basically... It was like state media, basically. Mm-hmm. It would just sort of, you know, parrot whatever he was saying. And I mean, they've their relationship has soured since then. But they're still the ones who are putting out, you know, like unsubstantiated rumor and fear mongering and hate mongering. And even um, I'm not sure how much how familiar you are, but like they even will like mention people's names um, who they are like displeased with. And those mm-hmm. people end up getting targeted with hate, like online and offline. It's very disturbing, like. So I'm just wondering, how does this media kind of function in Australia? And and is there like an alternative to that? Or is it just dominant? It's pretty much like in the States. So we've got News Corp, which is also Murdoch, um, exactly as you described it, you know, when they will mention me or vilify me in their news, and the Sky News is the one which is kind of the I would say the far right outpost. I just want to say, like, you're when you go off on Sky News and those speeches <laughs> that you make, I just get so, I just, I love it so much. Anyway, please go on. <laughs> no, but it, but exactly that is exactly what happens. It unleashes. You know, I will get, I will start getting emails from people, hate, mm. hateful, abusive emails, social media. It just kind of skyrockets. It is. I mean, News Corp is the flag bearer. I have to say, of dog whistling and racism in Australia. And it has fostered a really toxic climate of division and Islamophobia. And it flourished for years. And it is the propaganda arm of the government, but it also is a huge influencer on the government. It makes mm. or breaks prime ministers. That's wow. how huge That's how the influence it of, of it is. Absolutely. Wow. And, you know, and it's it's not like per chance that they're doing this. They, they have this malicious agenda. It's not as if, you know, they're doing it at a whim. They know that the constant vilification of Muslims, of minorities, of First Nations people, of refugees does shape public opinion in this country. And they know that what they do legitimizes and normalizes the most extreme of views. So, you know, they're very willful accomplices Mm. in what we have seen pan out in Australia and in the US as well. And I mean, we have our public broadcasters, which I would say are the only broadcasters which 
not opposing Murdoch media, but, you know, have a more kind of, if I can say, balanced approach to reporting. Um, but media diversity is a huge issue in Australia. There's just two big private media-owned companies that own everything, mm. which I think is quite different from the U.S. There is, I think, a little bit more diversity in the media in the U.S., even though Fox News has a huge influence. Yeah, it's. I think it's very polarized, but um, it's kind of like whatever type of perspective you have, you will be able to find media that, you know, kind of you're happy with. So mm -hmm. whether you're like a centrist Democrat, you'll find it on like CNN and, you know, MSNBC and like cable news, mm -hmm. non-Fox News, cable news. And then there's like the Fox News people. Those are like the hardcore Republicans. Um, and then if you find both of those distasteful for various reasons, uh, you know, as I do, there's public media, which is like NPR. Those are, you know, partially funded by taxpayer money, they are better. They are still not, you know, perfect. They still, for example, have real problems with the way they report on things like Palestine, but they are definitely much better um, than some of the large corporate-owned media outlets. It's, it's pretty much the same here. The Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is the big public media across Australia, um, they are better. But yes, on issues like Palestine, it could be a different story. Uh, but also, they have also, I would say, been complicit in sometimes putting on their channels, um, you know, right-wing fascists and interviewing them, right. which I think sometimes shouldn't get a platform at all. Mm. Um, and they uh, they are constantly under attack from the conservative governments here. Their funding being cut. Oh, yeah. Constantly Same being attacked in, in parliament. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually made a decision when I joined politics, to never go on Sky News. And I have been really trying to convince progressive politicians to stop mm. doing that as well. You have to draw the line somewhere. Mm. Yeah. And it's like, it's always going to be a bad faith conversation. So you, mm. you won't gain anything from it. And you're, you know, providing them with something that they don't deserve to get anything from you. I think you, if you go there as a progressive, you know, politician, you're kind of legitimizing what they do. You're boosting mm -hmm. up their their ratings, their you know viewers, and why why would you do that with something like that? Whose I feel the only purpose is to divide our community and to vilify certain minorities in our community. Yeah, well said. So throughout your political career, you've been involved in politics at many levels, from municipal to state to federal. How would you say that those levels interact with each other? And what do you find is the most productive way for engaging all three of those, especially as regular citizens, people who are not politicians, uh, but, you know, they want, we want to improve our lives and our communities and our experiences as citizens of the countries we live in, or even as non-citizens. I mean, yeah, that's also very important. I'm, I'm glad you raised this issue of non-citizens because during COVID, we saw the people who suffered most were people who didn't vote. In Australia, right. when COVID support was provided, the only people, you know, financial support, the only people who were left out of that financial support were international students and those on temporary visas. Mm. Um, so I think there's a big debate to be had about how people who don't have that piece of paper to say that mm -hmm. you're a citizen of a certain country, can have an influence on politics. 
Um, in Australia, there have been ongoing debates about whether this country is overgoverned with the three levels of government. I mean, population-wise, it's a small country. And so we often have that debate about whether local government, you know, this municipal government should go, whether we don't need state governments. But, you know, there are ongoing debates and we still have those three systems. From my experience in politics, I think there is nothing too small or too big that you can do to get involved in politics. Everything matters. And I actually got a big surprise when I moved to Australia. In Pakistan, I grew up with everyone talking politics. Really, everyone. Like the samosawala on the street talks politics. You go into a shop, you can talk politics to the person who's um, on the other side of the counter. It is just everyone. It's entrenched. And I came here... Mm -hmm. Nothing. No yeah, really. it's, it's rude to bring up politics. Actually, people could be offended if you bring up politics in the conversation, whereas you're absolutely yeah. right. When you go back to, like, in my case, to Bangladesh, politics is conversation. Like, that's everybody's concern on an everyday basis in everything that comes up. Like, it's so relevant. And we have this kind of almost psychotic separation of politics and life, whereas politics is life. Absolutely. I, I didn't realize that that was the case in the in, in the UK. I think US probably, but I don't know. We'll hear from Anissa. But, so it was quite surprising to me. And for me, I think the biggest challenge we have here is to get that engagement of people in politics. So what I say is every little thing matters. Every little thing can create a change. Pick up the phone and call your representative, whether it be local, state or federal, you know, for me, I have pushed for changes to law when people have called our office and told us their stories. So I'll just give you one quick example. I think it was a few years ago, I was in state parliament and a woman called our office and said that she had been fired by her boss for telling him that she was pregnant. Wow. I was like, what? no way in the world. I know. That still happens? <laughs> But that was exactly our thought. And we thought, no way, she's mistaken, you know. Surely in 2016, I think it was. It's the 21st century. How can this happen in Australia? But we thought, you know, this person has called, very distressed. We should look it up. So we started looking it up. And lo and behold, hiding in plain sight were two subsections of the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Act, which actually allowed employers to dismiss or to not hire an employee who knew that they were pregnant at the time of hiring. Can you believe wow. that? It was ridiculous. Just, I was outraged. I was actually outraged. So, you know, we put a bill together and then I went and, um, you know, put the bill up. I went and met the attorney general uh, and we, because, you know, it's government, we weren't like, we didn't have the numbers to make the change. We ran a little campaign um, and the attorney general tried to convince the attorney general to make that change. And, Surprisingly, they did because they also thought that it was a ridiculous thing. But, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you this funny thing that the attorney general said after he had made, made the change. He did acknowledge my work and said, often you get loopy ideas from the Greens. But from time to time, <laughs> but from time to time, you get a good one. This is a good one. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if that was a compliment, but I frankly was over the moon. It's kind of yeah. a kind of a backhanded compliment. Backhanded. Yeah. So so there you see, change can come from just one phone call. Sometimes you know, wow. it can come from 
kitchen table conversations. It can come from being out in the streets and fighting for change. So, you know, write a letter, send an email, anything you can do. Just get active. Whatever is within your capacity, do that. And it does make a difference. Do you think politics is the best way to try and make those changes? Politics is the best way to try and make those changes. Parliaments may not be the best way to try and make those changes. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, sure. I mean, politics is not just about being in parliaments. Politics is about making change no matter where you are. And if you look at history, most of the big changes have come when people have rallied for those changes, you know, the civil rights movements, the women's movement. Politicians are dragged to the table. They're the last people to be there to make that change. Obviously, it helps when there are voices in parliament who are also pushing loudly for those changes. But the way politics is, politicians are the last to be dragged to the table and they're only dragged to the table. And this is a bit of a cynical view, but when they see their constituents, you know, saying to them, well, we're not going to vote for you again if you don't do this for us. So, you know, we often forget that people do have a lot of power. At the end of the day, I think people always have more power than those who are supposedly in power. But we have got to recognize that and realize that and get active and get organized. It's interesting you say that because one of the things that has been coming up in the conversations that we've been having over the course of this podcast, or at least one of the things that I've been thinking, is that we had such an embedded belief in our power to change things, yet we couldn't, in the UK, we couldn't stop our government from going to war in Iraq. We couldn't stop them from invading Afghanistan. What happens, like, how do you get past the disillusionment of politics being too broken for you to be part of? Well, it is broken. It is broken. There's no question about that. I guess the question is, how do we fix that? And us being disengaged from it is not going to fix that. Look at my Senate chamber, for instance. It is so different from the world that I live in. Hmm. It is so different from the multicultural streets and suburbs that I live in. I mean, heck, I was the first Muslim woman to be in any Australian parliament when I got elected in 2013. Muslims have been in this country since the 1800s. How does that make any sense? But because, you know, we we are, I mean, we are second-rate citizens. This That is undeniable. And I realized that with time as well. That is the sad truth, you know, that migrants of color, for instance, that our Australianness will always be conditional mm-hmm. um, unless we do something about it. Like, it is conditional on us keeping our heads down, you know, and our mouths shut, like you said earlier, the good migrant, you know, working hard and, you know, doing good for the economy. It's conditional on us being grateful to be let in. Yeah, and compliant. Yeah, wonderful country. It's conditional on us, you know, agreeing with those in power. And it's conditional on us giving up our identity and assimilating. As soon as you don't meet those conditions, you're the enemy. And this is kind of what I experienced. But unless we do that, things are never going to change. Yeah. So I guess what I say, and, and I think there's not enough of us doing that, Khadira, to answer your question, I think. That's why we haven't been able to create that change that mm-hmm. we need to make. You know, to go back to what you were saying earlier about how you saw this difference from how when you were in Pakistan, everyone 
in every walk of life was always discussing mm-hmm. politics. And here in these white supremacist countries that we live in, there's like this whiteness, or I, I like to call it the politeness of whiteness. Here, we <laughs> there's this, this discourse that like, you know, I, we have been talking a lot in our country because of, you know, the election of Trump and all of the the things that he kind of made it okay to say in public. We've been talking a lot about civility now. And a lot of activists have said, you know, like, don't tell me to shut up um, and be polite when my life is is at stake, when my rights are at stake. Like, people get shut down by this sort of discourse of civility of, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, don't say anything that makes people feel uncomfortable. That, that, what does that translate to? Don't make white people uncomfortable. Don't make the people Mm -hmm. in power uncomfortable. And so like, that is one of the tools that society uses to keep people who are, you know, marginalized from trying to speak up. And, and so, so it's by nature, when we do speak up, we're going to have to face some risk and some discomfort and some hardship, um, but I think it's worth it. And I I see that in your work, Marion Popo, and how like brave you are. And um, that kind of leads me to my next question. As a woman in public life, as a brown Muslim woman in public life, anyone who has kind of occupied that ac- activist space in a settler colonial country will be, you know, subject to this toxic mix of Orientalism, misogyny, white feminism, xenophobia, like you name it. And then you get put in this weird box where, you know, we've talked about this with some of our other guests, where you're both the victim and the victimizer. You know, you're you're threatening and you're also threatened. And you referenced Ilhan Umar in your book. And I'm sure you've heard in the last week about how one of her colleagues in the House of Representatives implied that she was a suicide bomber. Um, And I think just yesterday there was some tape that was leaked that where she actually called her a terrorist. So, you know, like just another day for a Muslim woman politician. Um, But when you when you quoted from your amazing epic speech, which we will link in the show notes, so definitely go and listen to the whole thing. But I quote, just because you have the audacity to not only exist, but to open your mouth and join the public debate. So how do you navigate just like going through your daily life, doing your job while also facing this avalanche of vitriol? And how does what you face in person compare with what you get online? Or is it kind of a continuum? Often I'm questioned or I have been questioned over the last eight years since I've been in politics about, you know, how I navigate this. And I've come to that in a minute. And there are various things, you know, because you have to navigate it. If you if you want to fight the system, if you want to make the change to make this journey that I've made a little bit easier for others who might want to follow, then as the first person to be in this position, you have to bear the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. But it is grinding. It is absolutely grinding, you know. It, there's this expectation that, you know, we should stoically just go ahead and do this without ever raising the impact it, it has on you, um, I think is is unrealistic as well. And the issue about face-to-face and online. I mean, the online environment is not some mythical, magical thing where these trolls appear and, you know, uh, abuse and... Um, threat you it there are real people 
Yeah. And they're passing mm-hmm. on these threats and abuse to real people as well. So I think it is a continuum. You're absolutely right. Uh, but just, you know, I was just thinking I might just relate to you a few things that have been said to me kind of face to face in in parliaments by politicians. So, for instance, not very long ago, um, I was in parliament at a community meeting where a liberal MP mispronounced my name. And that happens all the time. He mispronounced my name and then told a room full of people, I think most of them were South Asian, told us that we should have simple names. Uh, uh, You know, when I was in New South Wales Parliament, an MP commented that I should cook with cow dung like a million families in the subcontinent. This was as I was speaking about the governments, which I call irrational exuberance on coal mining. Another accused me of using terrorist sorts of tactics when I was raising a procedural point. Um, You know, and there are many other examples. And like I said, I'm in a chamber where racism is thrown on you and you're gaslighted a lot. So, and, and this goes on and often no one really stands up and provides you support. You know, you're, you're the one who have to bear this and then get up and also call it out. And when you do that, you are actually called out for being divisive. Right. Yeah. So it's not the, the, the racists who are, um, you know, who are called out and who are asked to pull back. But it's you who are creating a problem. You are dividing the society. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, day in, day out, it does get grinding. And, you know, people have often said to me, Anissa, that I should get a thick skin. And, <laughs> you know, or often said to me, oh, you must have a really thick skin. But I don't. And I don't want to develop a thick skin either. I don't think I'd be useful to anyone if I wouldn't be sensitive to the needs of other people. Like you can't pick and choose what you have thick skin for and what you don't. So, you know, you bear it. I've got a a fantastic team around me. I've got family around me who support me. But I will have to say it's not easy. It is not easy uh, to get that barrage of abuse um, almost every single day. It does get to you at times and you do wonder sometimes, you know, whether it's worth it or not. At, at one point in time, when we decided to fight back this abuse, we came up with this Facebook album called Love Letters to Marine. That sounds lovely. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it sounds wonderful. I'll, I'll tell you what yeah, it is. It's amazing. Yeah. Just listen. It's, yeah, I'll tell you what it is. It was, you know, it came at a time where the abuse kind of had reached its peak or we thought it had. Um, And, you know, my staff would see it. We were all like, it was really distressing for all of us. And we thought, well, we can't remain silent about this. We've got to do something. But what should we do? And we decided we had to expose it. But we had to expose it in a way that would cut through. So we developed this Facebook album called Love Letters to Marine. So every other week, we choose a pretty abusive message, uh, put that up on Facebook with a kind of a humorous, sassy retort from me. Um, and I'm, if you like, I might read out a couple yes, of please. those for you. Yes, live. <laughs> That's amazing. Live, please do. Live. Okay. Um, can we use the F word? Um, it's your I'll choice. F. <laughs> F is fine instead of the actual F. word. Okay. 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 <laughs> that, that's how we get around it. Yeah. Okay. So Mitchell. Mitchell asked, how the F has a Muslim been let into Australian politics? And I offered, hi, Mitchell. I know, right? One minute, it's white Australia, and then bam, 
<laughs> and then there was uh, Jamie. Jamie expressed his disagreement with me and he said, Marine, I think we disagree on two key points. And that's killing greyhounds to save them doesn't make sense. And Muslim immigration to Australia was the worst thing since smallpox. So I had to be honest and say, Dear Jamie, I have a hunch that we would disagree on more than that. <laughs> so those are just a couple of examples. But there were sadly, there were so many to choose from. But what it did do was the feedback that we got was that people actually didn't know that this was happening to people of color. And especially, I must say, Muslim women of color in the public life. Because mm -hmm. again, you know, after 9-11, we, we became the key targets of people, you know, whenever there was a terrorist attack somewhere in the world, people took their anger out on Muslim women because most of us are quite, you know, visibly Muslim mm -hmm. yeah. because of our attire. And we're seen as, as weaker and easier to victimize mm -hmm. than Muslim as men. As well, as well, absolutely. So people did, had not realized that this was going on. And it actually did develop an online community of supporters who would then, when messages like this were, you know, were put, put up on our social media platforms, like these abusive message messages, they would come out and push back on those. So I think that that was really good. Um, so we did that for a while, but I think even that took its toll. It was like, no, this is just too much. So now my strategy is basically to, to you know, to call it out every time I do that in parliaments, whenever there's an opportunity and, and to push back, to galvanize the community, to push back, be more active. Uh, I'm now the anti-racism spokesperson for the Greens as well. I think it's the first time anyone from what I know in Australia has had an anti-racism portfolio and a spokesperson. Um, but I think we really need to do that. We are at a stage where I hope this is the height of it and it doesn't get, get any worse uh, because a movement does develop to speak out against it and to push back and to make these places, you know, equal and just to live for anyone who's here. We have our work cut out for us, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so heavy. <laughs> Can I derail for a moment? I, I know I'm the derailing champion, but this is something that really, really struck me. I'm so sorry. I'm going to do it. It just, it struck me so hard in your book. And because you just uh, referred to it a little bit earlier as well, about the price that you pay for citizenship, but that you had to pay an even higher price in order to become a senator in the first place, which is surrendering your Pakistani citizenship. Like, I don't know if I'm more angry or, or if I'm more sad about that, but it feels like being asked to cut out a part a cut off a limb, something that is so inherently part of you. How do you, how do you do that? This mm. isn't even a question. I'm just like, it sounds mm. so painful. It absolutely was painful. Um, I actually didn't think that, that it would be the case. I hadn't thought about it much, but I knew that I had to do it. And it was when I started filling out my form and I had filled it out. I put it in my drawer and it sat there for a number of days because that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I was giving up my birthright, that I was, yeah. you know, cutting yeah. ties, 
cutting ties from my my background, my history, from generations of my family. And I had not realized that it would feel that way at all. I just think it is a ridiculous law because it does actually, I guess it forces a lot of people not to be engaged in politics. I have so many friends who say they will never give up their citizenship of their country of origin. And so they are immediately cut off. And it's unfair to be asked to. It absolutely is. I mean, that's is. like the most supremely racist thing. I mean, there's so many supremely racist things, but mm. I just want to acknowledge how painful that is. Yeah. It goes back to that idea of like how your loyalty is always going to be suspect in a way that, you know, a white Australians mm. or a white American or a white is British assumed. person's loyalty yeah. will never be. Yeah. And, and that sort of constant scrutiny of like, oh, does she really? Is she really? You know, I mean, they don't think of you as one of them, but like, <laughs> it's just, it's like, oh, well, here's proof that you're not really one of us. We found something. They're like constantly waiting. That's right. And in, in, in the end, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter, right? Me yeah. giving up my citizenship mm. didn't make me more Australian didn't, in the eyes exactly. of so many, right? It's, it's exactly that. That's where the roots are. It is in that mistrust, distrust, othering, xenophobia, you know, all of that. Absolutely. And this law needs to change. I hope that you can be the one to change it. <laughs> on your long laundry yeah, list of things that you need to say. So. I'm writing it down, number 1001. <laughs> so I want to shift gears to something that is very close to your heart, and that is the environment. And I wonder if you could tell us, because you explain it so eloquently, what the connection is between environmental justice and social and political justice inextricably linked. Social, racial, environmental justice are inextricably linked because we can see, just look around the world and you'll see who's the most impacted by extractivism, capitalism, colonialism. It is people, you know, living in the global south, people of color, no matter where they live, actually, not just in the global south, people of color, are First Nations people living um, in Australia, Uh, you know, black people living in America, US, wherever it is, it is people of color who are being screwed over by the imperialism and colonialism. And even in countries that used to be colonies and, you know, were were robbed of their resources and money, that legacy still goes on. The legacy of colonialism still goes on. And the legacy is so entrenched. You know, growing up in Pakistan, I can be very honest and say that You know, my view, the narrative that trickled down to me was that white people are always better than us. You know, they came here, they they made us better somehow. And so my view of Australia before I moved here was that, you know, that is a country that has reached justice and equality in every sphere of life and society and politics. And you come here and you, you know, you think, whoa, how wrong was I? Um, and, you know, the, these kind of injustices and unfairness and inequality, it's kind of a universal fight, isn't it? But the issue of the environment, I think, is specifically relevant at the moment when we are in the climate crisis. And, and we see how countries that are being impacted first and most are places and people that really didn't do much at all to contribute to the crisis, like our yeah. Pacific neighbours 
in, in Australia. They, they literally, they, their homelands are sinking. And Australia is kind of at the bottom of the list of action on climate change. Um, so I think it is the, we cannot forget that these legacies of colonialism, imperialism continue on. They continue on in, you know, debt and trade systems. Um, they continue on in the imperialist wars that yeah. happen and the interventions that happen all over the world um, that, have, that have kept people who look like, like us still kind of downtrodden and uh, in poverty. Like poverty is, is not written in the stars, as a wise person once said. It's a very deliberate attempt to keep us, I guess, still enslaved in some ways. Yeah. You say that when you were growing up in Pakistan, you used to sort of have this I guess you could call it like a colonized idea of Western countries, right? And I used to feel that because I grew up in Canada and the U.S. and I had a very clear idea of what it was like to live here. Um, and I would go mm -hmm. to Pakistan and people would talk about England and about Canada and about and I was like, but what are you talking about? You know, like we're not, you know, like we're not experiencing that as brown people who live in a white country, like. And I mean, obviously, my awareness of that changed, but especially by the time I was a teenager and I was facing the backlash from 9-11 um, and, and understanding exactly, you know, who, who and what the power structures in my country were designed to protect and who they were not designed to protect. And also just as a lover of history, I was always interested in, you know, the history of colonialism and and all of that. So... I used to feel that a lot. And I, I don't know, I haven't been back to Pakistan in a long time. So I don't know if, you know, that has kind of changed a little bit in the last 20 years, given sort I hope, of... I hope it has, uh, but I'm not sure. But you're absolutely right. You know, our minds, my mind was colonized. No fault of my own. Hmm. Uh, but because we were colonized. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we we still, and, and I, th I think we have to make, again, a very deliberate choice to decolonize our minds and and then start to decolonize, you know, spaces um, and thoughts around us. I mean, one of the things I often, we often joke about now is like Omar and I, basically one of the things that made us leave Pakistan was the corruption that had set in so deeply um, in Pakistan by the time we grew up and we were kind of working and we thought, well, that's, I, we don't want our kids to grow up in a society um, where their values constantly clash with the values of the system. And then when I when I joined politics in 2013, that first year in New South Wales Parliament, I think it was 10 government MPs had to resign or go to the backbench because of corruption allegations. It It is just rampant here as well. And it's mainly legalized corruption. Mm, like I think yeah. corporate donations is a legalized way of corruption. There are grants handed out. It's called pork barreling. Here they're handed out by governments in electorates where there might be like marginal electorates or where governments want to win seats. So they hand out public money to, to win yeah. votes. That's kind of legalized corruption. We've had a New South Wales premier who had to resign just a few months ago. Uh, a liberal New South Wales premier resigned a few months ago uh, uh, under allegations of corruption. She's being investigated by the New South Wales Corruption Watchdog. And while that investigation is going on, there are now calls from her party to run for federal parliament. Wow. It's like, it's. I just <laughs> cannot believe it. I just cannot believe it. And it clashes so much with that narrative yeah. of, you know, 
the politics in our countries where we grew up are so bad and politics in um you know white countries westernized mm-hmm. countries are just so honest and you know they have integrity and that's not <laughs> the case at all yeah. and i don't know if i should feel sad about it you know that all politics is corrupt at the moment yeah it's so interesting that you make that uh, that observation because as you say there's this perception that the countries in the global south are just like so corrupt in a way that we can't even imagine our governments doing yet it's only that the machinery for the corruption is different because you're talking about okay you know just handing out cash and put it like literally pocketing it but what you've got in in governments like you know in the UK or the US and Australia is as you say it's all disguised under this like veil of of legalities throughout the pandemic for example the uk government has been handing out enormous contracts to their pals mm-hmm. for things that they didn't deliver and like the corruption is at such a scale that even trying to make people interested in it is it's just been so bizarre watching the sort of british politics play out in in this whole situation because our government has been embroiled in in this sort of sleaze a season of sleaze, I guess. I mean, a very long season. It's the conservatives. They're always sleazy. So this this whole thing about these, you know, the huge contracts, the blatant breaking law-breaking by people in government, and yet people are only concerned about being, you know, anti-maskers and the things they're demonstrating about is their right to not cover their face. And it just kind of blows your mind sometimes because... I mean, yeah. how are you meant to be better? How are you meant to rise above insignificant things to really change? Conversation by conversation, just talking has a lot of power. One of the things that made me think I could be a politician in parliament <laughs> was was door knocking. I kid you not. Mm. You know, it was like the first election I ran for it was an unwinnable seat but the greens put up a candidate in every seat at every election just so that there's an opportunity to campaign and you know put forward our policies and we campaigned i would come home from work and we would go out with a team of three or four people almost every other night and door knock and just talk to people and just the idea of you know opening up someone's front gate knocking on their door and having a conversation with them and then maybe one day taking that conversation into the decision making place which is parliament that kind of made me feel so wonderful about democracy in a way um so i i really think there is so much power in those conversations but i think you know you've got to grasp at hope somewhere right i mean you two give me hope it really is the young people around me that give me hope these days um and they have come out in droves you know with the black lives matter movement there's been a huge movement for um against sexism misogyny um sexual assault in australia recently because we had some alleged cases in in parliament where parliamentarians were accused of this behavior and so there has been a huge movement and you know young people and others has, have galvanized we had strikes where students from school came out um for the government to take action on the climate crisis and there are many young people of color and especially young women of color who have been front and center 
of those movements. And that really does give me hope that things can change and things will change. Inshallah. I'm glad that you, you know, are leaving us on such a such a beautiful note. I was going to ask you if uh, the climate apocalypse is inevitable, but I feel like we shouldn't go there now after you left to put us oh. in such a warm space. <laughs> we always try to close uh, in a hopeful place. Yeah, let's skip that question. <laughs> As we close, would you mind reading us an excerpt of your book? which we will also provide a link for you to purchase because it's an incredible, it's like a manifesto, I just want to say. It really is. I'm going to send Khadija a copy. We, we have like this whole box She's of them. She's been secretly I'm sending gonna, me pages. But I will, I will mail you your copy so you can like... I'm so excited. We just didn't have enough time before the interview. But um, yes, please go ahead. Um, thanks, uh, Anissa. I might read out last couple of paragraphs of my book if that's okay. So the last few paragraphs are about what I think we need to do to make structural systemic changes. We can't keep reproducing the same systems of power that have silenced, exploited and oppressed people. These old systems must be changed. Calling yourself an environmentalist, a feminist or an anti-racist and being one are completely different things. It's not enough to say I'm an environmentalist, if you don't make racial justice central to the struggle for climate justice. It's not enough to say I'm a feminist, if you're going to ignore the struggles of indigenous women, women of color, and trans women. It's not enough to say I'm anti-racist, if you don't step aside to make space for people of color. We are in a moment of history. Let's make sure our rage doesn't disappear into the abyss of untold history or an unchanged future. This is a moment to be thoroughly pissed off, to speak up, to be loud, to disrupt, to dissent, to organize, to mobilize. Let's act in solidarity with those who have been screwed over for centuries by colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism. Let's do so by building a movement that restructures power and privilege to unwind centuries of entrenched injustices. Let's do so with the hope that things can change because they can. Yes. Can I, can I clap? I would Thank drop you. my mic, but I can't. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. No, I mean, that was, that was perfect. Absolutely beautiful. Yes. I, I feel like we have been energized to step outside of our houses and start a movement. And and it's mutual. I, I'm so energized. And like I said, you both are so, so wonderful. It is so great yeah. to see you doing this work. Uh, and Khadija, so incredible to meet you. And hopefully we can meet in person one Inshallah. day. We were just talking, Omar and I, my husband and I were just talking about how much we love London. And hopefully we'll get there soon. So oh, I'll definitely please come tell and me see if you come. That would be amazing. I, I won't leave without meeting you in person. Oh. I can tell you that. I look forward to it. We actually haven't even met in person before. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a completely oh. online friendship, but like, I feel like I've known her my whole life at this point. Yeah. Anissa is my best friend. Well, one of my best friends. Our other oh. friend would be really sad if I said Anissa was my actual best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you so much for, for doing this with me. I really, really feel very thank privileged. Thank you for giving up your premium time. Like, I can't even imagine how much your time is worth, but 
Such a gift, Jazakallah. It keeps me going as well, to be really frank, just to get the love and support. And, you know, like Mm. you just get it. And there are not many people around me who just get it, (laughs) really. So um, I think it it really kind of nourishes me so much. Mm, I'm so glad to hear that. So I know you're very easy to find, perhaps too easy to find, but (laughs) (laughs) where can people find you on the internet? Where can people find me? Uh, Twitter, Marine Faruqi. Facebook, Marine Faruqi. Instagram, Marine Faruqi. There you go. <laughs> just, just my name. <laughs> Please send her real love letters. The one and only. Yeah. <laughs> and where can people find us, Khadija? They can find us also on Twitter at MIPSPOD. That's M-I-P-S-P-O-D. And you can email us. Please email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice or by going to musliminplainsight.com. Yes. And that's it. That's it. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Love Love you you too. too. See you soon. Yes. Assalamu alaikum. Take care. Wa alaikum. (laughs) Assalamu alaikum.